How y'all doing? Good, good. Thanks, Jordan, bringing that mini word. It was good. Um, yeah, hey, the baptism pool's warm. I'm hoping to have a second campus out there. It's like a hot tub. Uh, so, you know, as we grow, we'll just have the hot tub service outside. I'm just kidding, but it is nice. Um, all right, well, if you are new here or haven't been tracking with us, we have been in a series we're simply calling Healthy Relationships. Uh, and we've been in that series the last number of weeks. And, you know, as, as we start today, I want to ask you to just think of a simple question. And here's this. I want you to think about someone's words that has marked your life. Think about someone's words who have marked your life. Now that could be something that someone has said that brought life to your soul. I remember uh, one of my teachers who was the Minnesota Student Council Director. And I remember him pulling me aside and just saying, Mark, you're a leader. And he challenged me. He said, Mark, I want you to act like the leader that you are. I needed a lot of that in my early years. <laughs> but he also challenged me to step up and run for some leadership positions. That changed a trajectory of my life because I didn't have that voice like that in another place in my life. Well, maybe someone's words that have marked your life have been destructive. I remember my now friend, Michael, not so much uh, as much then in the sixth grade, went to a party and uh, mom dropped me off. I was cool, calm, collected, ready to go to the party, sixth grade life. And uh, I remember I come to the door and Michael opens the door and said, who invited you? You're not on the list for this party. It was like a, a, a dagger that went into my soul. Right, and those words, so simple. You know, I totally played it off, cool, didn't think much of it. But those words stuck in my soul for years to come in a way that was detrimental, in a way that I felt like I needed to prove myself to enter into certain relationships that I had. Words are powerful. And we live in a time where we have normalized verbal carelessness. We've actually made verbal carelessness righteous in certain settings in our culture. And if you're wondering, you know, are you sure? Just go on to Nextdoor app. I don't know if you have Nextdoor app. It's an app that was created so you could get to know and care for your neighbors and, you know, rescue every lost puppy together and share butter and salt, you know, and have a great neighborly life together. But when you get on the app, you realize it's not quite so much that. It's like every neighbor put on boxing gloves and, like, came to the down square to, like, show one another up. Like, like I'm like, holy cow, you know, when you step in there, what is even going on here, Right. Um, and most of us, especially in the last couple of years, we, we've lived in crippling fear at some point or another of saying the wrong thing because we are afraid of what would be said to us, right? And so the reality is whether it's social media or close relationships that we're in, 
our souls can be built up or our souls can be torn to shreds by the words that people speak around us. You see, words have an ability to touch the deepest parts of who we are. Past a physical injury, past a circumstance, words can get into our very psyche. Words have an ability to get into the very fabric of our identity. Science actually backs this up. Dr. Andrew Newberg, who specializes in it, he says that words can literally change our brain and brain chemistry for the good or the bad. He says this, a single word has the power to influence the expression of genes that regulate physical and emotional stress. Wow, that's a big deal. If this is true, our communication patterns in our relationships, how we talk to and how we talk about others are leaving a wake and a trail behind us. Whether we want that or not, our communication patterns in our relationships, they've got a wake behind us. Today, I wanna help us understand both the power of our words in the context of relationship and also how we can utilize those words to bring an abundance of life and healing and intimacy and breakthrough in our relationships, how we can literally be a conduit, a life-giving stream wherever we go. I think we want that, don't we? I think we want that in our friendships, in our marriages, in our, uh, with our roommates. I think we want that um, at our workplaces, right? So let's dive into the word. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. We're going to be looking at one simple passage. We'll look at a few others, but one main passage today. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, it says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. I'd actually love for the saints, the people of God, to, to read this all together. Just because we believe the word is powerful, right? Who believes the word is powerful? Here we go, saints. You guys ready? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. I want to start with this first phrase. Death and life are in the power of the tongue of the tongue. You see, words really do have the ability to impart death or life in our relationships around us. Literally, the kingdom of God advances or is thwarted by words that are spoken or believed. You might think I'm exaggerating. Let me illustrate this for a minute in scripture, right? Because often when we think the kingdom of God advancing, we think like, oh, I'm going to go do something crazy for Jesus, or I'm going to go to, you know, or like just something really dark. But really, the crux point, the, the hinge of how the kingdom of God advances or does not is all around words. 
If we're to go back to Genesis chapter 3, if you're familiar with the story of Scripture, we've also been in this passage on and off the last um, number of weeks. When Satan enters in and tempts Adam and Eve, like I've said, he doesn't come with a pitchfork and a horn, right? He doesn't strangle them to death. He comes with words. And what he does, he says, did God really say? Just twisting God's word a little bit. And then he comes out with a lie and says, surely you're not going to die if you eat of this fruit. In fact, Jesus said of this, of Satan, he calls him the father of lies. He doesn't just call him the father of evil or the father of bad things or the father of darkness or death or hopelessness. He calls him the father of lies. How does Satan advance his kingdom? How does he bring darkness and hopelessness and despair and divided relationship and destruction in our homes, in our families, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our workplace? Words. He uses words to twist our view of God, twist our view of ourselves, and twist our view of others, and twist our purpose on earth. Now I want to think about God's plan to advance his kingdom and to bring life in the earth. How did God, how did God bring life into the earth? John 1 says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. What happened when Jesus stepped into a broken, disordered, lied to world, the word stepped in. Truth stepped into the world to bring order out of chaos, to bring forgiveness where there was hatred, to bring clarity where there was confusion, to bring healing where there was hurt. The word stepped in. Then Jesus confirmed an Old Testament scripture. He said, we don't live off bread alone. We live off every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How do we know God? We open up the word. We love the word. How do we get set free? The word, the truth will set us free. How do we build a life that will be shaken no matter what storms come our way? We build our house on the rock. We build our house on Jesus' word. So how does God advance his kingdom? How does he bring life where there's death? How does he bring unity where there's division? How does he bring hope and healing where there's hopelessness? He brings it through words. Words that are truthful about God, about ourselves, about others, and about our purpose. You see, then what he does next is incredible. God not only is the word and uses the word to shape the world and frame the world and advance his kingdom, he gives us a measure of authority in our words to either partner him with him or not in bringing that goodness and that kingdom to the earth. That's why it says the power of the tongue, not just the power of his tongue, but you and I have a measure. We're not God, not his level of authority, but you and I have a measure of authority in our tongue to partner with him or not. You see that all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. Now, if this is new to you, if you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, that's okay. We're glad you're here. We're always learning along the way. But for those of you who maybe been around the church or been around Scripture for a long time, how does God name the animals? 
Adam. God doesn't say, well, this animal's named that and that and that. He says, Adam, why don't you name the animals? Adam picks words to describe the animals, and what he does is he speaks an identity over those animals that will stick with them and be used from generation to generation about those animals. God delegated a measure of authority, not all authority, he delegated a measure of authority to Adam around uh, his words and to humanity. You see, our words have the power to stamp identity and make generational impact. I think Rabbi Yehuda Berg captures this concept of the power of the tongue well. He says this, Words are singularly the most powerful force available to humanity. We can choose to use this force constructively with words of encouragement or destructively with words of despair. Words have energy and power with the ability to help, heal, hinder, hurt, harm, humiliate, or to humble. We have been given a measure of authority to partner with God to bring about his kingdom or work against God to, bring, uh, to, to hinder his work in our closest relationships. Our tongue is powerful in our relationships. So we need to choose how we're going to use that measure of authority in our closest relationships. When you have something powerful, right, you need to learn how to use it. So I, I like to train my kids on how to use tools and power tools, right? We, we have some fun around our house with that. But I don't just give a huge saw, right, to my son and say, Go to town, buddy. I'll be back in a couple hours, you know? I don't give them a power saw, a circular saw, and do that. I train them how to use that powerful tool so it'll be safe, help others be safe, but also get the job done, right? Because we like to get the job done in our house too. So uh, our tongues are powerful. We want to learn to use them to bring a harvest in our, um, and to bring life where we are. So the second half of this verse, if you want to pull that back up or look back down at the verse, right? There's power in our tongues, and it says, those who love it will eat its fruit. What does that mean? It means that those who love the understanding of authority and power in our words, it will honor it by stewarding it rightly, we will eat the fruit of our words, this is a picture of a harvest that comes from stewarded words. And so if we're to talk about that in the concept of relationships, our words have an ability to bear a harvest of life in the people we love or a harvest of death and barrenness in the people we love. So we need to choose in our relationships, in our families, how about in our workplace, right, with those coworkers that drive you crazy? We need to choose what kind of harvest are we gonna have? We build that harvest through learning to discipline and harness our words for good and not destruction. Now, let me just kind of illustrate this, talking about a harvest. Some of us are real good at killing plants, right? Like some of y'all, you're like, I'm a green thumb, and it's more like, no, nah, sorry, <laughs> right? That's me at times, right? First of all, you got to know what you're planting, 
what kind of seeds do you have available to plant? You don't just plant an avocado tree but think oranges are going to grow, right? You got to know what you're planting, what kind of seeds you have, right? Uh, secondly, you generally know what you got to, you, you need to know what to do. If you have a plant that needs to be in the house and you put it out in July in full sun, that thing's going to die, right? You got to know where to plant the seed, how to water it, how to foster it, right? In the same way, we need to be consistent. We need to consistently water, consistently clear, care. Same way with our words. We've got to know what type of words, when and how to use them to bring life, and then we want to be consistent in our relationships with how we speak. Y'all tracking with me? All right. So what I want to do is just help us understand a few tools at our disposal when it comes to how we use our words in relationship. The first one we've already gone over in this series, so uh, I'm going to be really quick on this. Uh, you can go back to week two of the series in case you missed it, and that is vulnerability. <clears throat> Vulnerability in relationships, as we talked about two weeks ago, is extremely powerful. Vulnerability is being open and honest about where you're at while embracing the work of Christ and identity of Christ in that process. Not where you want to be, right? Uh, not where you were, you know, or, or whatever. It's, it's where am I at? Being, being honest, being real, and it's, it's, it can be scary. And what vulnerability does in a relationship it actually fosters some of the deepest connection that we want. It fosters an environment of being known. It fosters emotional intimacy. It fosters a connectedness. It fosters and facilitates an environment of care, okay? So that's vulnerability. I said I already hit it, so we're gonna keep moving. Secondly, a tool that you have in your verbal uh, tool belt, all right, since we're on the tool theme, uh, is encouragement. Now, encouragement can take a lot of forms, right? Affirming someone's value, affirming their identity, affirming their calling. I see this in you. You're good at this. I want to affirm that. I want to call that out. Uh, how about affirming their gifts? How about affirming, <clears throat> appreciating? Hey, I, I saw that you did that. And I just want to stop and acknowledge that every day you do this, this task that could feel really boring <laughs> and you're sacrificed. I see that. Thank you for that, right? That's a type of encouragement. How about just telling someone you love them? Again, I love you. I value you. Not for what you do or don't do, but I just love who you are. I love you for you, right? Those are all types of encouragement. But what is encouragement? Basically, it is to give hope, to give support, or to impart courage <clears throat> to someone, right? To end Courage, right? You see the word courage in there? It gives or imparts courage to someone's heart. <clears throat> so what encourage, encouragement does in a relationship, it enlarges their heart. It enlarges their confidence in who God's made them to be. It affirms what they bring to the relationship. It affirms what they bring to the world and brings them closer to who God made them to be. Essentially, it sees the gold in someone else, oftentimes when they can't see it in themselves, and it calls that up. And the crazy thing about relationships <clears throat> is that there's a whole long list of things that aren't gold we could keep bringing up. And I'm gonna get to hard conversations next, so you know, keep your seatbelts on, we'll have fun. But 
encouragement chooses in the midst of a whole lot of things that aren't gold to see the gold and to call it up and to do that consistently again and, and again and again. And we see God doing that. We talked about this last week, Jacob, right? God changed his name from something that meant deceiver to Israel. He spoke identity and purpose. With Joshua, God comes and says, be strong and courageous. I've given you promise. You will go to the promise and be strong and courageous. We see God doing it with Gideon, this insecure young leader. He says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon's like, Who, me? Mighty warrior? <laughs> okay. It called up this thing in Gideon and spoke, you are a man of God. You have what it takes, man. Step up, Right? And Gideon became a different type of leader. Jesus did it with Peter. He said, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, I mean, the entire book of Ephesians is, um, is stamping identity and purpose and life again and again. You're pure. You're righteous. You're adopted. You're a saint, right? Um, you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. The entire book of Ephesians is encouraging identity, stamping Christ's work in your soul again and again until we believe it. And so what we're doing to encourage is we're partnering with God to stamp what he says and what he thinks about someone um, onto their soul. Now, the reality is some of us grew up in homes that were absent of encouragement. For some of us, encouragement is hard. And that's okay. Maybe it was a home you grew up in. Maybe it's your personality. <clears throat> you tend to see kind of what is, what is wrong and needs to be fixed, and, and you are a gift in a whole different way that we'll get to soon. But um, God wants to fill us with encouragement because I believe he wants to encourage you. And especially if encouragement is hard for you, encouragement is hard for you I believe God wants to encourage you where you're at, God wants to fill you with his love for you so it overflows out. If Jesus came to love us when we're yet unlovable and gives us a new identity and a new purpose, then our lives as believers ought to be overflowing with encouragement. Like the hallmark of believers, right, ought to be encouragement. Like we ought to be almost annoyingly encouraging at our work, right? Um, now, given, I have off days, right? And I'm not using an excuse. What I'm saying is this is not easy all the time. So all of us are very much en route on this one or very much in process on this one. But Hebrews captures it well uh, when it says this in verse thir- uh, chapter 13, verse 3. But encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, right? (laughs) So that none of you will be hardened by his deceitfulness. So last time I checked, it's not tomorrow. And it's not yesterday. It's today. So he's calling us as believers to bring that good news into our relationships by being encouragers, right? This is why one of the many reasons we do life groups, because we don't always live in an encouraging world. And the reality is all of us are still learning and being trained to be encouragers. 
This is why we do uh, community, because we need to be surrounded with people who will bring God's encouragement and truth and call the gold up in us again and again and again and again. So um, I want to invite us, when we talk about encouragement, let this be probably the primary, other than just detailed communication and catching up, let this be the overall tone of your relationships. Let this be the overall tone in your home. Let this be the overall tone in your friendships, right? Again, this isn't the only thing. And if, if this is the only thing we do, we're flaky, right? Um, and, and like I grew up in a very positive home uh, and it was like shallow at times. So encouragement should not be the only thing we do, uh, but it ought to be the overall temperature and probably primary thing uh, because what that does is it fills our emotional banks relationally again and again and again. So a couple ways we encourage well. Number one, pray for God's heart for that person. Now, I don't know if you're always overflowing with God's heart with people the moment you wake up. I'm not. I don't know if you're overflowing with encouragement and God's heart for your boss when you wake up. I know Jameson does. Uh, but, uh, but, you know... Uh, now, sometimes if you're James, you've got to pray for God's heart for me or for your boss or whatever, right? Um, we, so, <laughs> just giving me a hard time. Uh, the reality is we all need to tap in sometimes to, to an infinite love for people around us. So if, if you want to grow in encouragement, instead of just trying harder, start in the prayer time. God, what do you think about this person? Now, I do this all the time in my marriage, and I don't brag on I just take the credit sometimes. No. Uh, I, but I literally, I do this all the time in my marriage. I do this all the time in my parenting. I do this all the time with people, especially on the road. God, give me your heart for this person in this Toyota Corolla. I can't believe it. How could they be so self-centered, right? They're not thinking, right? God will help you out and make you to, uh, into an encouraging person that you don't always feel like you are. Uh, secondly, affirm God's heart for that person. Even if they screw up, even if they're fumbling around in life, you can still carry and communicate God's heart for that person. Also, affirm God's calling for that person. If you see a fragment of them doing the things and walking the gifts that God's called them, affirm it, call it up, be their cheerleader, call them, call them forth. Acknowledge the things you appreciate about them. I, I appreciate this about you. And you do this all the time. I would never even think to do that. Like, I love how you're wired this way. Learn how they want or prefer need uh, to be encouraged. Not everyone's uh, tank is filled the same way, right? For the first years of marriage, I thought I was winning all the time. She's like, actually, I like to be encouraged this way. I was like, oh, right? I never thought to encourage you in a way that was different than I would want to be encouraged. Right? Okay, so encouragement. We've got vulnerability, we've got encouragement. Lastly, hard conversations. A little cringe, right, in the room. The reality is all of us have this little disease. We're afraid of what people think a lot of the times. And most of us, we didn't see this happen very well. Sometimes we saw explosions, like it's chill, and then a volcano goes off, right? And then other times, it was just like, man, there's no 
gentleness in the conversations or no love that happens over time, right? Or others, like I grew up in the Midwest, right? I don't know if this is like this in Iowa. You just didn't have hard conversations much, right? Like, like everyone's just, hey, this is a phrase called Minnesota nice, right? Everyone's just friendly. Just don't rock the boat, right? That's how we do it in the upper Midwest, right? It's just, let's just not have hard conversations and just pretend everything's great, um, right? Or it might come out as gossip, right? Uh, I'm not going to actually have the hard conversation with the person. I'm just going to talk about the person, right? So, um, you know, I, I don't know about you, but relationships are not pain-free or trial-free, right? It's not always just like smooth sailing, like, oh, this person just perfectly understands me, and I just understand them, and we're just like Jesus together. It's so great. Praise the Lord, brother, right? Like, that's not how relationships work, right? Uh, Relationships are fraught with opportunity to misunderstand. Relationships are filled with opportunities to be frustrated, divided, believing the worst, having undealt with pain that festers for years, right? So we need to learn how to talk about the stuff. And if we don't know how to talk about the stuff, the stuff multiplies, right? We can be encouraging all day long, but if we're not talking about the stuff, right? You know the stuff in your relationships, that stuff that drives you crazy. If you don't know how to talk about the stuff, it multiplies. Or if you talk about the stuff, but you do it in the wrong way, it multiplies. Some of y'all tried to come and have a conversation about that stuff, and it blew up, and then more stuff happened, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. You see, hard conversations actually protect the relationship and build the relationship by lovingly addressing the problem head on and not allowing it to continue to divide. Let me say it again. Relationships actually protect and champion the, uh, sorry, hard conversations protect and champion the relationships by not allowing division and confusion to reign. And if we don't have the hard conversations, it comes out sideways. Vain imagination, right? Lack of communication produces vain imagination. Building up anger or bitterness. Volcanoes happen, right? Triangulation happens, right? So like if, right, if I have, uh, you know, something with Jameson, and we're frustrated or whatever, and I'm frustrated, but instead of talking to James, then I go over here and talk to Neil, and I say, Neil, I don't believe that James, come on my team, because it's better over here, right? Uh, And all of a sudden, I start to gather people kind of to my side and to understand me, because I want to feel understood, instead of just having the conversation. That's why Matthew 18 says, if someone has something against you, go first to them. Right? But if we don't know how to have our conversations, we take our pity and we draw other people into our pity party and they start to divide the body and God's people. <clears throat> okay. Or we gossip or whatever. I could go a long list. Right? But, but when we don't address the issues, it's like the engine light that we leave on. Right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? You leave it on and you walk in faith for a while. You're like, I've got faith for another 1,000 miles, right? I've got faith for another 2,000 miles, right? I'm, I'm praying over this. I'm walking in faith. 
and then you're just waiting for an explosion. See how long your faith lasts, right? That is relationships when we don't know how to have hard conversations. We're not loving people by not having the conversation. It might feel good at the moment to not have the conversation, but we're not loving people by not having the conversation. We're not loving our spouse. We're not loving our kids. We're not loving our parents. We're not loving our friends, our roommates, by not having the conversation. We need to love people and the relationship more than we love their opinion of us. We can't love people around us if we worship their opinion of us. Our love for that person has to be greater than their opinion of us. And when we start to get free of their opinion of us, we can actually start to love and walk in emotional intimacy instead of a a, a dance of fear that has a facade of being kind but lacks any real type of substance and intimacy. And the reality is some of us, we've built our relationships and our marriages around that. Our first number of years, that's how we did marriage. It looked great. We prayed together. We loved Jesus together. We, you know, we encouraged one another. We wrote notes to each other. We went on dates, but we didn't know how to have these conversations. <clears throat> Wrapping up this point, I love these two passages back to back. Proverbs 27, verse 5, better is an open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend but deceitful are the kisses of the enemy. A conflict-free relationship looks real nice, but it's deceiving. You see, because if we're not willing to have the conversation we need to have, we're not loving that person. It says faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you're walking close relationship with people, it ought to hurt sometimes. That's why church hurts sometimes. And I'm not justifying like church abuse. I'm I'm not justifying that. But what I'm saying is that relationships will hurt because it means having conversations that are beyond the surface. All right. I'm going to skip some parts. Simply, how, how how can we do this well? Number one, go directly to the person. Right? Don't let it sit for like months and talk to five people about it. If you are confused about something, go to the person. Pray beforehand. Don't come in hot, ready to prove your point. Pray beforehand and do that thing we talked about with encouragement. What do you think about this person? What might they be thinking about this conversation? Ask questions. Hey, I noticed that you said this. Could you fill me in on this instead of, hey, blah, 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 you know? <laughs> mean what you say, say what you mean, but don't say you mean. That'll preach right there. <laughs> Consistency. We need to have hard conversations consistently <clears throat> so that it's normal instead of letting it build up to a level nine and then a volcano, an atomic bomb goes off, right? Well, we have a culture in our relationships of emotional intimacy that leads to hard conversations. Then what happens is that becomes normal, and and like I said, emotional intimacy and life is the result. A simple tool that Chris and I wanna, Chris, if you wanna start coming up here, um, 
This is from uh, Pete and Jerry Scazzaro. They wrote some of the emotional and healthy books. If you want to pull up that, um, it's the last slide, I think. Uh, community temperature reading. This is something that we try and do consistently in our marriage. It just kind of is like a check-in. So it normalizes different types of conversations and keeps conversation flowing because like left to myself, I'm a bozo and I'm like, how was your day? I don't ask any good questions. Like that's just bozo me left to myself, right? Just come in dull. But this helps us to kind of get into each other's heart in a relationship and it has, hey, I appreciate this. I see encouragement on number one, right? Here, I'm, I'm, this gets into worries or concerns. I'm worried about this in our relationship. Or I'm puzzled about this in our relationship. Could you fill me in? Because what you did was confusing. Or, hey, I notice that this happens, and I actually prefer to go this way, right? I could keep new information. I got some new information today, right? Hopes and wishes. This is really a, a, a deep level. Man, I hope that this goes well, and I'm afraid that this doesn't, isn't going to go well, right? So I want to practice this here. Uh, this is something we do consistently in our marriage, and we kind of debrief our day, and um, it tries to kind of normalize encouragement and honest conversations. So um, I'll start. Cool. Hey, um, I just want to say I appreciate all that you do. Not only behind the scenes in our home, uh, <clears throat> the way that you have consistently done certain things around the house and cared for the kids in ways that I didn't have brain space for, but I love all that you do with the church that they don't even know of. And so I just want to say I appreciate both your support of me because I give a lot here and you're consistently giving to me, but you're also giving to them in ways that some of them don't know. And so I just want to say, you've sacrificed a lot, and I'm sure that's been exciting at times and painful at other times, and I want to say I really appreciate that. Thanks. Mm -hmm. I see you, girl. <laughs> Thank you. I wanted to say that I appreciate how intentional you've been um, with the kids lately, uh, just coming and having ideas for fun things to do with them when you get home. I appreciate that when you come home. I know you're tired, but you still just sort of like dive right into their lives and their worlds. I appreciate how fun you are with how much you laugh, how much you draw craziness out of them. Um, and just, uh, yeah, I'm super thankful for that. And I'm also... Uh, very much appreciate all the intentional questions that you ask me. <laughs> um, you're a really good question asker. Um, and I also appreciate that last week after that conflict, which we had in front of everyone, <laughs> you improved significantly on paying attention to, like, nighttime and what time it is and bedtime. So I really appreciate that. Hey. Thanks. Appreciate it. One other thing I want to say, just that I appreciate, I, I love that you don't shy back from hard conversations. You've really, I've learned a lot from you in this, um, and I know uh, you're someone that sees how the world around you can always improve, and it's such a redemptive thing that you've really brought that into our marriage, and given me something I didn't necessarily get in my family growing up. I've got some other good things in my family, but you've really helped us. Helped me, but also helped us. Our relationship is so much better because you are willing to, to go there. 
And one of the ones that came to my mind when I was thinking about that was <clears throat> when we were out of town a couple weeks ago and you shared some preferences you had around how our Saturdays went and you would love for me to be more intentional in a couple areas. That was really helpful for me and it helped bring me out of feeling like I'm not doing something right or failing into like, oh, we're on the same page and I know what I'm doing now. So thanks for doing that. Um, okay, so I actually have a preference uh, that I'd love to share and I think it's a place this actually gets back to some of our consistent myths that we've had around time. Um, and we shared some of that last week with y'all. So welcome, welcome to the speeder home. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and I, I think we're doing better than ever on setting clear what we're expecting for the nighttime routine with the kids or just certain parts of the day in the flow or getting kids out the door in the morning. Um, I think we're doing better than ever. And I know that you're in the flow with the kids a little more than I am. Here, so, all the encouragement he's doing before he even tells me his preference, I would just tell him. Personality. <laughs> it's like, okay, what is it? Just tell me. It's good feedback. Thank you. Sometimes I feel like we make a plan and then it doesn't evolve in the next few days, but then it evolves probably as it should in life. I think sometimes then you expect me to perceive that it's evolved, but I'm not good at, I'm not always perceptive of a person. So I expect so, you to, change, to read my mind. Yes, I think I sometimes feel like you expect me to read your mind. Yeah. And then uh, I'm frustrated I've, when you don't. Yeah, and then I feel your frustration and it makes me frustrated, but also feel like I can't get it right. So... Uh, and then I want to shut down and just like not lead in that part of our yeah. home. So thank you for sharing that. I can imagine that it feels that way. And I do sometimes expect you to read my mind and that's that wrong. <laughs> so I will do a better job at communicating, making sure we're communicating ahead of time. Um, if I make changes to our schedule and routine, which I do often. So sorry about that. Thanks. And I love the changes. I'm just not always... A perceptive person. Yes, I will communicate so. better. Great. Thanks. What you got? Yeah. Uh, I have noticed that you like to take your shoes off when you come home. And that's great. Um, I would prefer if they don't get left everywhere except for where they're supposed to be. <laughs> I would prefer if you put them in the bedroom and not like on the living room floor or something like that. It's not like a trophy for you, like in the <laughs> middle of the living room? Like, nope. oh, he, he did hard work today. Look at those I shoes. I mean, I love your shoes. Your <laughs> shoes are amazing. They smell amazing. Your feet are awesome. I'm trying to, like, you know, give you the encouragement, but I don't. They don't always just... smell amazing. Uh, I will say that you. having these frequent things, really touch points like this, really do help things like that not build up because you just automatically have them in your. So things like shoes being left can like really get to, I don't know, how, mom, I don't know, for me, little things like that can really get over time to me and I don't think to tell him. And so having these touch points really help those little conversations not become so big, which is like what he said. So anyway. let me ask one follow-up question. Is there a place I tend to put them or just everywhere? Uh, next to the couch mm. in the living room. Okay, great. Noted. He didn't know I was going to do that. Noted. Okay, are we done? Great. I, I think we're good. Yeah.
So here's, here's what I want you to respond. I am noting in my response not to leave my shoes next to the couch in the living room. Some of you, you're with me on that. Um, but I actually, before we respond, um, I want to take a moment just for God, if we can get um, band, maybe just a strum. What I'd like to do is, is just take maybe that relationship or that person who you love but is hard. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a roommate. I want you to start by sitting with God and asking him what he thinks about them. So sit, Father, just fix your eyes on, on a loving Father that we have. Thank you that you got love for all of us, which is so good, because I don't always have that. So Father, we take this relationship before you, take this person before you. We invite you right now to fill our thoughts and our hearts with what you think and feel for this person. For some of you, what's rising up right now is maybe empathy or compassion. Maybe it's insight. I was praying for an extended family member who I miss with or experienced disappointment in our relationship. God just showed me how they're trying. They're doing the best with what they have. And my heart shifted from disappointment to empathy, to understanding of, of what they're feeling and maybe their set of fears. It took me out of myself and into their heart. place of coming tenderly and even at times painfully before you because the pain is real but Lord speak to our hearts in that place do this even with culture around us do this with our neighbors do this with our co-workers Lord help us to see where other people are coming from 